Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Today's study takes us to Mark chapter 12. If you recall last time, Mark chapter 11 had ended with Jesus telling his disciples that there was no fruit in Jerusalem. The temple uh, was not fulfilling its purpose. The temple leadership was not bearing fruit. They were uh, making it a den of robbers, a, a place where robbers go to hide. They were committing crimes against the people of Israel and injustice against the widows and the orphans and those who are in need. So Jesus had told the disciples that if you say to this mountain and you have faith that be cast into the sea, it will be done. Uh, the religious leaders then come up to Jesus and question him at the end of chapter 11, saying, by, by what authority do, do you do these things? Now, Jesus seemingly doesn't answer them, but in, in all reality, he does essentially kind of give them an answer. He answers them in rabbinical fashion by asking them a question. And this question is, well, by uh, the baptism of John, was it, was it from heaven or was it from men? They didn't know how to answer, of course, saying, if we say from heaven, then people will say, Jesus will say, why didn't you believe me? But if we say it was from men, they'll be afraid of the crowds. So Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Of course, the answer to Jesus' question of his authority was, it's the same authority that, I, that John the Baptist had, namely, that is, it's from heaven. Now, the parable of chapter 12, in which this chapter begins, is going to actually confirm this thought for us. Now, this parable in chapter 12, the parable of the vine growers, it's the only, the second major parable in, in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the, the major, other major parable being Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, there's kind of a couple other parables told in that chapter, but they all relate to the parable of the sower and revolve around it. So in reality, Mark 4 and now Mark 12 are the two main parables in the entire Gospel of Mark. And that tells us the importance of this parable. Now, note the parallel between this parable and the one in Mark 4. In Mark 4, there were three sowings. There were four sowings. But three of the sowings didn't bear fruit, only the fourth one bore fruit. In this parable, we're going to have three prophets that are sent, uh, and no fruit's going to be received, and the fourth one is going to be the son. Let's look at the parable. It says, Jesus said, a man planted a vineyard, and he put a wall around it, and he dug a vat under the winepress and built a tower, and he rented it out to the vine growers, and he went on a journey. At the, end, at the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the, from the vine growers. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. And again, he sent them another slave and they wounded him in the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Now what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers, and he'll give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they, were fe they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him, and he went away. Now, the focus of this parable is certainly going to be the owner of the parable. But if you're an Israelite listening to this in the first century, you're going to recognize at the very beginning that a man planted a vineyard is going to remind them of Isaiah chapter 5. 
Isaiah 5, verses 1 through 7 says this, Let me sing now for my beloved a song uh, concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around and removed its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it, and he also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and, I'll, and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall, and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste, and it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold a cry of distress." Now note the parallels between what we've been discussing in Mark chapter 11 and the parallel uh, with this par parable in Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard is Israel. It's the house of Israel, in fact. It's the people of Israel. Uh, and God ex uh, expected this vineyard to produce good fruit. And he looked for justice. But behold, bloodshed. Remember Mark chapter 11, verse 11, Jesus went in, into Jerusalem and he went into the temple and he looked around. And we realized that he found no fruit. That's why he cursed the fig tree. In the book of Isaiah, the problem was the, with the vineyard was bad fruit. The problem in the, in the, in the Gospel of Mark here, in this parable of the, uh, of the uh, uh, vine growers, uh, is that the tenants have stolen the fruit. In Isaiah, the vineyard is destroyed. In Mark, the vineyard is going to be given to others. So uh, a man plants a vineyard, and he went out on a journey, and, and he, and he kind of rents it out to some tenant farmers. They're not owners. Uh, but they're tenant farmers. The, the real owner, of course, is the son, Jesus. He's the son. The leaders, of course, represent the wicked tenants. And this conflict is going to end with Jesus' death. But the man goes away on a journey, and, and harvest time comes, and he sent a servant. Uh, uh, doulos is the Greek word. Uh, and the servant is, uh, is beaten, of course, symbolizing the prophets from the, from the scriptures. And then he sent another servant, and this one is struck. And then he sent a third servant, and he's killed. Jeremiah 7 says, um, verse 25, since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising early and sending them. Yet you didn't listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did more evil than their fathers. These servants are the prophets and the Israelites would have heard this without a problem. But finally, in the end, the man decided to send his son. Now the servants actually have no legal rights. Thus, in sending them, the owner was appealing to the integrity of the workers. But the son, he's a legal representative. Thus, he's making an appeal to law. You have an obligation to give me uh, what, what is due. The idea is, of course, is that the owner assumes that, well, you'll at least respect the son. You didn't respect my servants, but you have to, by law, respect my son. The son's referred to as, my, uh, as my, his beloved son. He had one more to send, a beloved son, reminding, of course, of the stories in the Genesis of Joseph. The son, of course, is Jesus. However, the tenant farmers, when they see the son, they apparently conclude that maybe the father has died. And if that's the case, and the sons maybe come to inspect his inheritance, they realize, well, if they kill the son, and maybe if he's the only heir, then maybe the property will actually become theirs. After all, it's owner, it becomes ownerless property, and the one who works the field or works the property, they get legal right to inherit it. So they kill him. Jesus 
is the beloved son. He's the new Joseph. The question then raises, what will the owner do? He'll, he's going to kill those tenants and give the land to others. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23 is then quoted in this passage. Uh, Psalm 118 has been applied to Jesus throughout the New Testament. We've seen it numerous times. It says, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now, the stone in Psalm 118 is a reference to the cornerstone of the temple. It's this new temple. Jesus himself, then, is, by the, is therefore declaring himself the new temple. The stone which the builders rejected is me. I'm the son, and I'm the one whom you've rejected. Verse 12 tells us that they were seeking to seize him because they feared the multitude, for they understood that he spoke the parable against him. This is a good example. The, the Pharisees and religious leaders don't understand the parables. The parables are only to be understood with those who have ears to hear, those who have eyes to see, those who come to Jesus and find out what it actually means. They refused to do so, but even though they didn't understand what the parable meant, they knew it was against them. So they left him and went away. Now the, rest, the next section of this chapter now has three confrontations with Jesus and the religious leaders, and they come to kind of put Jesus to the test. Each test, of course, results with an affirmation of Jesus' authority and ultimately answering the question in chapter 11, by what authority do you do these things? The first one, verse 13, it says, They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. Now, this is kind of surprising. We don't know much about the Herodians other than the name. It suggested they're followers of Herod. Maybe they're Romans themselves, or maybe they're Jews who had come under Roman support and as a result became known as Herodians. But the Pharisees are the party of the people. They're, they're Jews, and they have a strong opposition to Roman presence and Roman occupation. The, the Pharisees were convinced that they are God's people, they're God's chosen people, and as such, only God is to be the ruler of the people. The Pharisees, however, realized that, well, the way it really is, is Rome's in power, and there's not a whole lot they can do about it. So the Pharisees kind of took this moderate approach. They thought that they would tolerate Roman rule and Roman oppression because if they did, at least Rome would allow them to have the temple and have the temple establishment and they can sacrifice and maintain their purity. So even though they were staunchly opposed to Roman occupation and the Roman presence, they actually tolerated it. But somehow the Pharisees and Herodians, two parties that we suspect had nothing in common and radically uh, didn't like each other, especially the Pharisees towards the Herodians, decide to get together because they have a common opponent. That common opponent is Jesus. And it says, they, uh, they, they came to him and said, Teacher, we, want to know, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. So they ask him a question. Verse 14, is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now the Pharisees resented paying taxes. And so if, the, if Jesus supports the idea of paying taxes, then the Jews would be appalled. But if Jesus doesn't support the paying of taxes, then he'd be insubordinate, insubordinate to Rome and guilty of treason. In other words, not paying taxes, he would be on the side of the Pharisees. Paying taxes, he'd be on the side of the Herodians. No matter which way Jesus answers the question, he's going to gain the favor of one party, but he's going to gain the opposition or hatred of the other. Now, what's interesting is this poll tax that had been instituted about 20 years or so earlier by the Romans, the amount of the tax was a denarius. A denarius was a day's wages. It was a silver coin. But on that silver coin, it had a bust of Caesar. And the inscription read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So Jesus, in verse 15, it says, uh, they say, shall we pay tax or not? And Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me here a denarius to look at it. 
when they brought him one, he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, uh, they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, well, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Jesus has navigated this political uh, uh, avenue very, very well. But interestingly, he says, bring me a denarius, which first off indicates that maybe Jesus didn't have any money of his own, or he didn't have one in his own pocket. He asked them the question, Who's, whose inscription and whose portrait is this? Uh, whose image? And here's the irony. The Jews were not supposed to possess images of anything. Jesus is asking them, what are you doing with this image in your pocket? Why do you have it? So he responds, you know, well, render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Uh, and it could very well mean, yeah, give Caesar what, he do, what is due him. And that is, pay him back what he deserves. Um, but render to God what is God's. Since man bears the image of God, then man should be rendered to God himself. Now the Sadducees, verse 18, come up to him. And the, Mark notes, the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection came to him and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, uh, man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no children, the brother should take the wife and raise, us, uh, raise up offspring to his brothers. So the, fair, the Sadducees come up with this, this idea that, well, what happens if this circumstance arose, verse 20, Suppose there were, there were seven brothers, and the first one took a wife and died, left no offspring. The second one took, took her and died, leaving behind no offspring. And the third, likewise, and so all seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? And here are the Sadducees who deny the resurrection, and they don't believe in anything beyond the Torah. Uh, Sadducees don't really believe in resurrection because in their mind, they don't see a basis for it in the Law of Moses. It's primarily found, the idea of resurrection, in the book of Isaiah, Ezekiel, and most notably in Daniel chapter 12. So they imagine this circumstance, which a, a woman marries seven times. Uh, each, in each instance, by the way, the, the next husband is to leave a, a child for that first husband. The first husband needs uh, to have a, a progeny, needs to have a, an heir to take over, lest his name die away. So each brother is going to provide this woman with a child uh, for that first husband. Jesus responds now and says, well, you're an heir. Uh, verse tw uh, 24, it's not the reason, it, 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 is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? The, the scriptures is the Torah. The power, of course, is what's in the hands of the Sanhedrin. They don't know the scriptures, uh, nor the Sanhedrin, the, the power that the Sanhedrin has. And the irony, of course, is that the Sadducees were the primary party uh, that comprised the membership of the Sanhedrin. The resurrection life, Jesus goes on to explain, is not an extension of an earthly life. There's no marriage in heaven. Uh, and, but after all, then Jesus re responds by quoting the book of, uh, of Exodus. And here's what he says. He says, I am the God, God spoke to Abraham saying, I am, God spoke to Moses, excuse me, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. The idea of there not being an afterlife, of there not being a resurrection, Jesus quotes the Pentateuch or the Torah, the books that the Sadducees believed in. They, they only believed in the first five books. And because he quotes those books and says, look, God is not the God of the, devon, uh, of the dead, but of the living. Now, the third, the third opposite, one of the scribes. The scribes are experts in the law. They're, they, they're, they're called scribes because they're professional writers. They, they pen the, 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 the Torah. They, they make copies of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And because they constantly are making copies of these scriptures, they're experts in the law, sometimes referred to as lawyers. One of the scribes came to Jesus and heard them arguing, recognizing that he had answered them well. He said, well, what commandment is the most, foremost of all? Jesus said, the foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. 
The second is like it. You shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And, and the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there's no one else besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding and with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. What's the greatest commandment is not an uncommon question from a scribe. Uh, Rabbi Hillel, a generation earlier, had summarized the law in the negative form of the golden, uh, of the golden rule. Uh, and scribes were these experts in interpretation. So Jesus' response is, well, look, the first great commandment is the Shema. Uh, Deuteronomy 6.4 begins with the Hebrew word Shema. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Uh, it's repeated every morning by Jews and every evening by Jews. But Jesus adds a second one, and that is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, for the Jews, neighbor meant fellow Jews. Jesus, of course, as Luke's gospel will tell us, will tell a parable of a good Samaritan, where Jesus says, no, your neighbor is anyone to whom you act neighborly. It's not who is your neighbor, it's to whom am I a neighbor. The man agrees, basically, with Jesus' response, and he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And then no one dared ask him any more questions. So verse 35, Jesus was answering, and notice answering, even though there's no question asked to him. Uh, and he began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, thus the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he his son? And the great crowd, crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now, the conundrum for the, for the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders is simply this. Uh, the, the Old Testament says in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord. Now, the Jews had ascribed Psalm 110 to David. And so, the first time the Lord is referred to here in this passage, it would be a reference to God. God said to my Lord. The second Lord would be a reference to the Messiah or to the King. Now, not a problem, of course, uh, ultimately, but if the Messiah is David's son, then how could David call his son Lord. David's the highest ranking man alive, and yet he calls the man, the, the Messiah, his own son, Lord, a, a title of superiority, indicating the Messiah cannot merely be a descendant of David. Having silenced the authorities, Jesus continues teaching in verse 38, Beware of the scribes who walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief, seat, chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. Verse 41, he sat down opposite the treasury and he began observing how the multitudes were putting money into the treasury and many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins, which amounted to a cent. And calling his disciples to him, he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they all put in out of their surplus but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Now, uh, this woman is going to parallel the woman who's going to anoint Jesus, and we'll bring this up for more discussion in chapter when we get to chapter 14. But for right now, let's simply note that there's going to be probably another sandwich, as we, uh, I alluded to earlier. This woman uh, who goes and offers her offering at the temple, and then there's going to be a woman in chapter 14 who's going to anoint Jesus. In both accounts, uh, the gift is specified. This woman gave two coins, the woman in chapter four, um, uh, 14. Uh, the, the oil was worth about 300 denarii. 
both of the gifts are therefore a great sacrifice. Even though there are two coins, the woman only owns four. And Jesus says she gave all that she had. Uh, the woman in chapter 14 gave uh, probably this heirloom. That's probably all she has. It might even have been her dowry. If, if she became abandoned by a, by a male, maybe her husband dies or sends her away. She has nothing now. Both accounts use the word poor. Uh, and then in each instance, the woman stands in contrast to the wicked men in the story. So likely here we have a sandwich with uh, Mark chapter 12 ending with a woman of a, uh, this poor woman or widow putting in two small copper coins in the treasury uh, at the temple. And chapter 14, beginning with Jesus being anointed by a woman, uh, Jesus being the new temple. In the middle then, it's going to be Mark chapter 13, the story of Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple. So Jesus is watching. The temple treasury was located in the court of women, which meant it's part of the inner part of the court, part of the Jewish courts, but women and children were permitted there to acts of worship. According to the Jewish Mishnah, there were th 13 large shofar chests. Uh, that means that they were shaped like a ram's horn. A shofar is a, a ram's horn, basically, uh, in the temple, and each dedicated to a special offering. The woman places two small copper coins, which is all she had. They don't even amount really essentially to a cent. Now, what's commonly understood is that Jesus commends this woman for her faithfulness. Look at this woman. She doesn't have any money at all, yet she gives the, really the only two copper coins that she, that she even has. Um, but if you look in the context, I don't think Jesus is praising the woman as much as he's condemning the religious leaders. What I mean is he's not condemning the woman. Of course, her act is noble, etc. But the, but the context is in verse 40, it says, the, the Pharisees and religious leaders they, and the scribes, they devour widows' houses. The very next story is a woman putting in two small copper coins. The reality is, is these two coins don't even amount to a cent, meaning the woman doesn't even have enough money to buy a loaf of bread. But the religious leaders have made these laws that she must give. And so she's forced to give by the religious leaders and by their, 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 their scruples about what the law means and how we obey it. And the reality is she gives these coins and now she's not even able to buy bread. Jesus' answer is this woman should not be made to give. This woman's giving out of all that she has, and that's great for her, but it's really a bad, shameful thing on the part of the, of the religious leaders. As a result, then, it exemplifies the fact that you have made the temple a den of robbers. It's a place where robbers go to hide. You are devouring widows' houses. You're abusing the poor. Uh, you're abusing those who are innocent. And as a result, judgment is going to come your way. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.